Welcome to the MBA Jam Podcast with your host, Avinash Bajaj. Hello again, folks. Welcome to another episode of the MBA Jam. This is your host and founder, Avinash. Today, we are speaking to Bhumika Zaveri. Bhumika is a founder of a company called Entry Market. Entry Market is a unique platform that's built to solve the challenges that modern organizations face in attracting, evaluating, and retaining project-based, highly skilled talent. We will hear more details about this from Bhumika in just a few moments. Before Entry Market, Bhumika has largely worked in HR and resource management in various organizations across London. She's done her MBA from London South Bank University, which has prompted us to speak to her today. Bhumika, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. No problem. So today my intro was quite light on purpose, you know, because there's no way I can do justification in in your career because I've never really faced uh, the challenges of HR and resource management. So I kept it quite light Mm -hmm. because I was really keen to hear directly from you in terms of, you know, how has your career progressed over time? And eventually, how did you end up starting entry market based on whatever you have seen as, as you've gone along? Okay, sure. Yeah, no, uh, thank you very much for the kind intro in the first place. Um, With regards to my background, so I graduated um, right in the middle of the financial crisis in 2007. So my dream of going into banking were crashed (laughs) with the financial crash. So I ended up temping in the recruitment sector. And I started temping from one job to the other. And because the market was so fluid, I basically became a a full-time contractor going from one project to the other, three months, six months, nine months, depending on the project duration. But actually, that was so empowering. Three, four years down the road, I realized actually I'd learned so much more, so much quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I then formed my own consultancy called BZ Consultants. Mm -hmm. And I became an interim manager. So I would then go into businesses, um, any sector. I've worked in charity, retail, um, blue chip organizations, IT and high tech businesses, wherein I would go in and be, be part of their HR and resourcing program management team, looking after change or transformation programs, redundancies, redeployment, or even recruitment projects. So my career over a span of 10 to 11 years was so deeply rooted into being a contractor, but also going into small and big businesses and looking at their processes of recruiting and managing contractors, that I was very fortunate to see firsthand the problems, uh, face them firsthand, get frustrated with them, mm-hmm. and eventually think of a solution, which is where Interim Market was born about two years ago. Right, right. So so you almost like stumble into the interim market, not necessarily a very conscious choice when you did decide to start there. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I see. I see. That, that's really interesting. And, and what is really fascinating is so, so what what exactly, you know, for someone like me who's not really been exposed too much, um, all I know is whether a job is a full-time job or a part-time job or you're running your own business. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what exactly is temping, uh, you know, the terminology and how is it different from, you know, some of the more common terminologies that we do here um, across? Sure. Sure. So uh, interims contractors, or as we call this, uh, the total skilled contingent workforce, this is the workforce that basically does full-time projects or part-time projects uh, 
over a duration of three months, six months, 12 months in businesses. And then they are sort of shifted out and then they go and join another company. Now, interims and contractors could be self-employed individuals with limited companies or sole proprietorships, Hmm. or they could literally be temps and blue-collar skilled uh, contractors that come in through different agencies to do certain projects. Um, You know, very heavy rail projects, for example, would have a lot of blue-collar skilled contractors. Um, I see, I see. So it's not just, uh, you know, contractors or independent consultants. It could also be people who are represented through agencies, but they do mm -hmm. come in for a specific uh, time period and maybe based on specific goals, they they come in for that Mm -hmm. and then they just leave from there, basically. Correct. I yeah. see. Interesting. Cool. Okay, good. So so you graduated uh, somewhere around 2007 to 2008, I think you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. And then you also did a PG, I'm seeing on your LinkedIn, that in project management, and then you graduated in 2009. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you did your MBA in 2009, 2011. So, so what was your thought process at that point of time? What made you even look for an MBA degree and what were you hoping to get out of that? Sure, sure. So as I started to temp and contract, I was always studying on the part-time as well. So my post-graduation was part-time whilst I was full-time employed. And then because I realized that actually I could do something and I could have my own consulting instead of, um, you know, just going in and being a temp or a contractor through an agency, I decided to go in and do MBA. I mean, I've always wanted to do an MBA anyway, because um, coming from an Indian family, it's always it's always a status quo. (laughs) I know, I know. <laughs> so there was that, and then being being the girl in the in the family that's done that, it was always a status quo. So I always wanted to do that from that respect uh, perspective. Mm. But also, my main purpose of doing an MBA was to actually understand how operationally and day-to-day we got so involved into things and jobs and contracts and how could someone like me become more strategic Mm. and start to look at the longer-term view or the bigger picture. I see. I see. Interesting. Interesting. So, so it was a combination of, you know, something that was always at the back of your mind uh, mm. and also combined with the fact that you did see some practical applications coming out of it based on where you were at that moment. Absolutely. I see. Cool. So you, you did it from London South Bank University. Uh, what mm. was your thought process in terms of choosing that particular university and, you know, what were your other considerations or options? Sure. So I did LSBU because I graduated from there. So mm-hmm. I'd uh, I'd known the faculty. I'd sort of known the the standard of education and practicality that went into it, which uh, which was quite interesting for me. Um, I was considering some of the you know A list schools like Oxford and Cambridge, mm-hmm. um, but then literally looking at the the fees. And again, this is yeah. practical for someone who's self funding. Um, would I would I be better off spending 40k on an MBA or you know at the age of 24 when I'm self funding or would I be better at you know doing it from somewhere that is almost a third in cost for example so I think cost played a huge role uh, I suppose for for anybody who doesn't have that cost parameter and if they do qualify then obviously an A league school has its own perks uh, but from a practicality perspective I don't think it is that different it's it's a, a it's up to an individual to actually make what they do of their education and of their MBA. It's not really a school or, um, you know, the, the network alone. 
yeah, absolutely. And and I completely agree. You know, some of the fees are ridiculous and atrocious uh, mm. in, in terms of in terms of how much they do end up charging. So, yeah, uh, I, I've spoken to a few. Um, it, that's that's a really good point, you know, because I've spoken to so many different kind of people on the show as well. And, you know, I've gotten a few entrepreneurs on the show. And, and that's something, a very practical point that they bring up that, you know, when you're really self-funding it. And I think entrepreneurs mm. have this common trait where the the question of value is a lot more um, obvious and prevalent rather than you know someone who has probably worked in a corporate job and con- hmm. and wants to continue working there where uh, where it's a very different mindset i guess <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Cool, absolutely. So, were you were you really considering uh, only the UK, or did you actually did think about Europe or even the US or any other place? I did actually think about Stanford. Mm. Cool. Okay. I yeah, I was. Um, I think more than a Wharton or Harvard. For some reason, Stanford was somewhere I wanted to be, um, even when I was younger. But but knowing again that I was in London, I was literally so close to. Um, any business or consulting gigs that I was doing at the time and the university, it was, again, a practical reason because not only was Stanford from a monetary perspective quite far out, but also from a time and duration perspective. So I did my MBA full time for 12 months and Mm. then my project for six months. And during my project and dissertation, I was working full time again. So for somebody who has to be very practical and be earning themselves as well to fund it, um, just having that, you know, that amount of education in 12 months or nine months rather was brilliant. And I couldn't afford the time out more than the money to, you know, to do an elaborate Stanford sort of MBA. But of course, that was on the list. That's always, you know, on the list when when you want to do something like that, because you want to explore uh, the benefits of coming out of a Stanford. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So why why Stanford? I mean, because um, why not, you know, maybe some other Ivy League? I'm just curious, is it because of the proximity to technology, which which is what you might be interested in, or, or what were the other reasons? <laughs> yeah, I think it was, it was just the Bay Area. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing that uh, for some reason, when I was growing up, I'd done IT courses and I was a coder, and I loved that part of it. So I think being in the heart of the Bay Area or the Valley was always um, an inspiration, I suppose. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Great. No, because uh, uh, the reason I was curious is because it's not like you had a computer science background or something in engineering. So I was curious that Silicon Valley has its um, influence even beyond people who have done engineering. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome, great. So so you also mentioned that you were just 24 when you were actually starting off your MBA. Um, mm-hmm. h- how about the timing? Uh, did you consider waiting for a few years and actually just trying your own business or trying something and then doing it? Or yeah, what were your thought process on, is this the right time to do it or should I wait? Or, you know, yeah, where were you on mm-hmm. that scale? That's a fascinating question. And this might surprise a lot of people, but I'm very patiently impatient. <laughs> What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) That means that I have the longer vision in mind, but I also want to get on with things and I just want to get them done as quickly as possible as well at the same time. So whilst I'm very patient and I know that things take its own time in life, uh, I'm also impatient when I know I can do something, I'll just get on with it. (laughs) 
I think uh, at that time, I wasn't as patient as I'm today. And I just saw this opportunity of, you know, having enough funds available to do that for nine months full time and work part time, etc. And I thought this is the best opportunity. For me, life is like very precious. Every moment, every hour is very precious. So um, being able to do it quickly and then getting on with my consulting um, and actually making that a business was was more exciting than waiting and and getting a bit older and wiser, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that that's that's a really fair point. But now that you actually, you know, been been seven to eight years now, looking back, I know it's a very different thing looking back as opposed to making the decision at that point of time. Looking back, what do you think? You think it was still a good decision, or looking back, do you think you would have waited? <laughs> I think it was actually a perfect decision to nice. do it when I did. Because if I was slightly older, a bit more experienced, I wouldn't have seen the value in doing an MBA. And a couple of years later, actually, I did write a blog about it. And and Mm. as I was thinking and looking back and thinking, did my MBA actually prove to be useful? So uh, I think if I'd waited for a couple of years, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah, yeah, very interesting point. Why why do you think that would be the case? Um, I think I'll go and hunt up your blog <laughs> uh, <laughs> to read that further and probably link it to the show notes. But yeah, I mean, why why do you think that's the case? Why do you think that after a few years you you mm. you you figured that the value may or may not be higher than you know when you made the decision? Mm. So that was because when I got my MBA, I was 25 or something or 26. And so what that meant is that I could have my own consulting. I could walk into a room with senior folks and get that credibility instantly because I've got an MBA. If I'd just gained work experience for a few years, I would have then gained credibility naturally through my work. And I don't know Mm. if just having a badge of an MBA in finance would have done anything to it, if you know what I mean. So I think getting credibility sooner really helped me building my consulting, which was the main purpose of sort of doing it in the first place. Because sometimes, whether we like it or not, there is still this whole, um, you know, the subconscious bias of if someone's done a degree or if someone's done an MBA, rightly or wrongly, they're perceived slightly differently to somebody who hasn't. Correct. Exactly. You know, that, that's a really great point. Actually, that was going to be my next question because now that it's been quite a while since you finished and you actually worked many years as well, what do you think about the perception of MBAs in the UK uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, perception of MBAs in different places? Now, I know very well the perception of MBAs in India because that's where I am from. Um, mm-hmm. But in the UK, what do you think? I think in the UK, MBA is really valued especially when someone, as I said, it's it's an individual application. If someone uses their MBA for the right job, for the right sort of uh, career, and they navigate through it properly, then absolutely it is valued. I think a couple of years ago, I'd started to see a lot of jokes being made around MBA students in the UK and US, where, you know, an MBA is is qualified enough to have the academics, but not the practical skills. <laughs> and And I thought that was a bit that was a bit, bit harsh. Uh, harsh. <laughs> yes, absolutely. For a better word, it was harsh because actually most people who've done MBAs have a lot of work experience. And regardless of whether we like it or not, there are some real practical applications from, you know, depending on the subjects that you've chosen and, you know, what, what you were focusing on. There are some real practical applications. 
Yeah, exactly. It, it is a fascinating topic, especially when I've spoken to those who are probably working in the Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. I think mm. a lot of the MBA jokes were mostly centered around those who started working in tech, <laughs> yeah. which I guess gets a little bit amplified over there, especially when you're surrounded by engineers. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I think this, this is one thing as well. I think when I tell people that I've got an MBA or a business degree, they think I'm not a geek or a nerd because only an engineer is allowed to be a nerd. But let's face it, guys, we can all be nerds and geeks and, you know. <laughs> exactly. I agree. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Great. So so, so you finished your MBA. Uh, how did it go next? Um, you know, did, did you really start off uh, your consultancy or your business right away? Or did you get to work somewhere? Or yeah, how, how did your hmm. process go from there? So I continued contracting for another year and a bit whilst I was completing my dissertation, getting my degree, etc. sorted. So I continued contracting. But Immediately, as soon as I had uh, finished my MBA, I could see a hike in my salary Mm. because at an interview, again, I think it was the perception that not my experience had changed much or neither had my age changed much, but that qualification bolt-on was really useful in starting to prove a point that I'm bright and I'm smart and I can tackle the kind of business problems that I haven't even dealt with before. Um, So that was very useful. Nice, nice. Okay, great. So, I mean, you, you, you were actually able to see some direct tangible benefit out of doing it, which is which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, yeah. Because to a lot of, I mean, uh, you can let me know what your thoughts are, because to a lot of the, uh, you know, people, prospective applicants who are looking at MBA, the first thing I warn them is, look, this is, this is an investment. This is something that you should really, you know, uh, accumulate over your period of your lifetime. You can't expect to see direct mm-hmm. tangible benefits necessarily that doesn't mean it's not there but that just means that you need to set your expectations um, mm-hmm. and not just you know walk into an office the next day and double your salary and increase it by like 200 um, percent yeah what are you what are your thought process do you, do you think do you think it for you it was because you were anyway working at, in an independent form which allowed you to have a lot more premium value attached as opposed to let's say you were working in a job do you think mm-hmm. you could have actually managed to double it even the job no no I completely agree with you there mm. so when I when I said that I had a better sort of offering it wasn't a hundred percent raise or anything like that at all it was but it was a lot more than what my peer at mm. my age without an MBA was getting nice okay right? exactly yeah so if I was in a job again depending on if I had done it independently and if the business um, valued that then I may have seen maybe a couple grand increase in my salary um, compared to my peers but I wouldn't have seen that sort of a jump so no you're absolutely spot on I think anybody who's doing or considering doing an MBA should be very mindful that this is an investment and it's a progression over a lifetime and it very much is applicable on how you apply your MBA as well just because someone has a degree or they may have a merit or a distinction doesn't mean that they're good enough, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. Agreed, agreed. Cool, awesome. So so you continue to work in a contract and then from there I can see that you continued working in, in de- various capacities, again, the contract role. Um, mm-hmm. And finally, I think in 2016 is when you took the plunge and actually started uh, entry market. So how did that come about? I'm pretty sure it must be something that was always brimming in your head and always like 
it was developing the concept was developing but why why 2016 what happened at that point of time to finally allow you to take that jump Right. So since 2012, the sort of contracts I was doing was under the uh, under my company, my consultancy as BZ Consultants. So for nearly four years, I was working through my own consultancy and I came at a point in 2016 where I could either grow the consultancy or I could find the solution of this problem, which was the ever growing same problem, every contract, new contract, same problem. Right. So mm. um and I was quite fortunate in that I was getting recommended from one project to the other, whereas many peers within the contracting world were not getting the same opportunities and not always uh, lucky enough to find a job or a gig instantly. So I decided to create a solution, you know, but to bridge that gap between businesses, uh, companies that are hiring these contractors and interims and the talent themselves. Whilst I was doing all of this, I think there is a lot of noise in the in the sector of various marketplaces and fancy job boards that claim to do the same, is, you know, increased mm. engagement, et cetera. But nobody was actually tackling the problem at the deep level of actually, you know, businesses have to go through multiple layers of third parties to do this. And there is a reason, there is a legal and compliance reason why they have to do it. So at Interim Market, our purpose and our vision is literally to help businesses move away from those third parties. Hence, we're the only hybrid platform that is doing this and that started this product journey. So yeah, very. Uh, we're still in the same traditional market space, mm -hmm. which is crowded, but we, we're quite unique in that our vision and what we want to achieve is very different at the end of it. Nice. Okay, so so I would really love to talk a little bit more about what Entry Market does and how it really, mm -hmm. you know, separates itself from the rest. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what makes it unique uh, as opposed to others in the market right now? Right. Sure. So so typically, in uh, what we've seen out there are, are job boards or marketplaces where businesses can go in and publish jobs for freelancers or contractors. Firstly, we don't work with freelancers at all. So these are the mm -hmm. kind of people who do ad hoc work. So we don't address that market. There are enough solutions out there, freelancer.com, Upwork, etc., that do that brilliantly. So we're not even touching freelancers. What we are focusing on is the, the more full-time or part-time, but more project-based three to six-month contractors. And what that means is that businesses currently have to go through layers of staffing agencies and managed service providers to source them, engage and hire them, and then manage them end to end. So including timesheeting invoices, invoicing because of a legal and compliance challenge in the UK um, and in the US, quite similar, but quite different as well when it comes to independent contractors. So what we are doing is we're, we're helping businesses at the first step, get rid of those staffing agency fees, which currently would be anything between 15 to 25 percent, mm. depending on the talent and we are giving businesses tools to basically onboard their current contractors or their past contractors so we can revive that data for them, bring it real time on the platform and then they can track their availability. They can basically, if they wanted to rate and review somebody from the past, they can do that on the system. They can rehire literally at a click of a button and send offers through the platform or they can find similar talent because we, we're powered by machine learning. Hmm. As soon as somebody kick, clicks, you know, find me somebody similar to Joe Bloggs, you know, similar profiles of candidates start to appear. 
so we're sort of closing the loop of giving them a, a real-time ATS system and ERP system for businesses and then linking it and powering it with machine learning to also have the benefits of a marketplace. Nice. That, that sounds that sounds really interesting. So so basically what is your uh, final offering is it a product only or is it a product and a service or yeah what what does that business model look like so we're a software as a service mm. business model purely because we want to remove the percentage fee make it very very transparent and visible to both parties and it's completely free for talent right so our offering of talent clouds real time rehiring you know and finding new talent etc is literally based on a monthly software f- kind of saas product model and um, if they need anything more or you know depending on the size of the customer would basically say if they were a basic customer or a premium customer and we would help set them in a tier i see i see i see how yeah. how are you finding it so far how how is the response to this in the market so far it's interesting you ask that i mean we've launched the the, the business side of it literally 6 weeks ago oh, wow. mid january yeah and uh, we've we've had uh, tons and tons of demos ever since and we're finding certain industries um so uh, we started only focusing on it and tech sector but mm. we're finding construction sector for example becoming very interested in what we're offering and you know starting to talk to those businesses so it's it's fascinating anybody who looks at the product thinks that this is the kind of painkiller that they've been wanting and the the industry needs but then what comes with something like this is a is a change and people are not usually comfortable with change so it's a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's a very interesting interesting place. But what I do tell businesses is that we're not taking away their budget. So we're not asking them to have a tech budget to roll us out. Mm. We're just helping them refocus their current agency spend and save them almost 40-50% along the way. Yeah, so, exactly. I think I think the most tricky part is to convince a business that this is different but it's same in one way do do you see where mm-hmm. it makes sense because as soon as they hear something is different the first thing i think the instinct is oh my god where where do we get the budget from because uh, yeah. this is not accounted for in our annual budget um, but then if you tell them that we are diff- but we are the same as the others and you start being compared with others who may or may not be doing exactly what you're doing <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So we we are always banging on about how we're not here to take your budgets away or you don't need a budget for us. What you really need is a willingness to stop paying agencies. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no, that I I think I think that's that's awesome. So I mean I really appreciate even more, you know, that you've launched us 6 weeks ago because this must be a really busy time for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's exciting. It's exciting. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. So who's in the business right now? Who else is there besides you? So we're a team of 10 at the okay. moment with uh-huh. um and half of it is the product team as you can imagine. I mean, I know I can imagine. <laughs> and yeah, and we we're, we're not going to be a services business at all. So we're not going to be recruiting, we're not going to be um you know we we're a pure tech player. Mm. We're automating a lot of the processes and workflows currently that are handled by human uh with the risk of a lot of human error. So we we're a pure tech player and so majority of our colleagues are in product team and development team and then there is three of us in the sales and marketing team and then we've got a couple um interims as well so we we live and breathe the whole ethos of having interims 
work with us. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Excellent, excellent. So how, how are you funding it at the moment? Have you received some kind of funding or is it self-funded or, or how, how is it going at the moment? Excellent question. <laughs> we were bootstrapped. I've been, I've been in the startup yeah. space for too long now. <laughs> <laughs> you have, haven't you? <laughs> we we were bootstrapped up until August 2017. Then uh -huh. we took some uh, pre-seed money uh -huh. to build out the vision and uh, prove the product because we'd already proven the product market fit with our beta earlier last year. Mm. And uh, so now that we've got the product out and we've got some um, really – good-sized enterprise customers in the pipe, we're looking to raise a seed round uh, and complete in the next two two months, yeah. Nice, nice. No, really, really, really good to hear. So good, good luck for that. Thank you. In fact, in fact, I just realized I feel really stupid now. I just realized the reason for your naming of your company. It's interim market. I just kept saying interim market. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. No, I thought I was intelligent in merging the interim <laughs> and markets M's. But obviously, you know, everyone calls it interim market. So now I call it interim market. I think I think the branding exercise at some point. <laughs> I think the capital M really confused me. I, I thought it's supposed to yeah. be said that way. But now I'm starting to get the sense of interim market <laughs> no no don't worry we can we can all call it interi market as long as it's spelled right on google <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> awesome Bad. awesome so so yeah i mean going back to try, trying to join the dots with with the mba as well you know so looking mm -hmm. back um that you've done the mba now whatever you're working on right now in terms of growing the business do you think that is something you would have done nevertheless like what kind of role has the mba played in helping you get to where you are right now i think i was always a a very pragmatic thinker mm -hmm. a realist um but i do feel that the mba is helping me now more than it probably did in my 20s. And I think the reason is because with a startup, being an entrepreneur is the kind of journey that many people think they know, but unless you're in the shoes of being a founder or a co-founder who literally has to sleep, eat and breathe the fact that you could be running out of money or, you know, you need to sell to early customers, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very, very different uh, feeling being in that position. So, um, I think with the MBA, it's obviously helped strategically keeping the eye on the pie. So, you know, the, the vision and not forgetting where we're headed and being able to lead and bring people along with me on that journey. And I suppose it, it's got a lot to do with potentially my own personality and how I want to lead, but a lot to do with MBA and a lot to do with certain things that I learned during my entrepreneurship modules you know in terms of what what does a visionary entrepreneur do how do they create this team where early days people want to follow you and want to work with you so there are obvious things that i can see that have worked for me that have helped me with my early teams and early product and potentially also helped me not make some of the mistakes mm. that i would have if i did not understand the concept of business or or starting on my own yeah, exactly, exactly. I think I think that's a really good point, right? Because I I feel like like this this MBA almost like shortcuts your learning in some ways, uh, at least in some of the areas. And I think that's where different personalities take the learning in different ways. Like in your case, you took the understanding of how to set the vision and how to rally around, um, you know, other team members uh, around your vision. 
um, etc. In some cases, like in the past case, um, some of them have actually come back with quotes uh, saying the MBA actually helped me get less freaked out when I saw an account statement. <laughs> when I saw a balance sheet, you know, I wasn't really freaking out. I wasn't just seeing numbers fly in my air, uh, flying my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think I it relate. just gives you that kind of confidence that, hey, you've got this. I mean, you've seen it in some form. Whether you were good at it or not, you've at least seen it or experienced it in some form. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think it also, during the MBA, I don't think it's the course that helps you do all of that. It's the people that you're doing it with. Because you can imagine, like I was young, I was in my early to mid 20s, but there were so many people doing it with me um, in their 30s. And, you know, they were really, really experienced people. So if I if I have to give credit, I can say I did learn a lot from the subject itself and the, you know, and the course itself. But I also learned a lot from my peers, which was, which is brilliant, right? Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's a really good point as well. That that's that's the kind of learning that you really can't put uh, a tangible value necessarily. That's mm-hmm. just learning that you get by exposure rather than you know a very focused, uh, conscious kind of learning. Absolutely. Nice, nice, excellent. So, so looking back at London South Bank University specifically, you know, is there, yeah, are you are you still in touch with the university or as an alum in some way, form or manner, or or have you lost touch completely? <laughs> um. So no, definitely in touch as an alumni. Um, we we were, I think, informally part of their incubator program. Mm last year uh, or even maybe the year before when I was starting to do the product market fit. Um, So definitely in touch. I think uh, having said that, the educational um, institutions do not move as fast as an entrepreneur needs to in a startup. So trying to sort of keep in in pace and, you know, I, I did try to get some projects through to the students as well last year, but it was just very difficult to get through the paperwork and time consuming enough to think, you know what, I'm going to hire somebody to do it because... Uh, obviously, I'm trying to offer value. But again, I don't think it's necessarily the people. I think it's the institution. And this is where sometimes when I'm talking about education, I, I do stress the point that we need to really speed up the education and change it to reflect the growing uh, digital economy, really. Yeah, absolutely. No, actually, that that's a good segue to a very um uh, you know, important question that I do end up asking most guests is, you know, let's say I placed you in a room with the MBA, with your MBA program directors and lecturers and, you know, members of the staff, what would you mm-hmm. like to tell them, you know, just such that they can, they can really help improve? Uh, I would definitely like to tell them is to stop focusing on the grading and, uh, you know, especially during theoretical gradings and, and those and focus more on the practicalities of it. Take us out more to businesses and companies and let us see real problems. I think the difference between a London South Bank University versus a Cambridge or an Oxford or any other, you know, Harvard or Stanford in the US, the, the A-League universities is the same, is that those guys get exposure to projects, right? In real time, they speak with businesses, they get to do consulting work and they see the problems firsthand. Whereas with LSBU, uh, like, like I just said, as a startup, I was trying to give their students an opportunity to work on something 
real life project, business, see the problems. But their paperwork just took so much time and the bureaucracy that I lost interest as an entrepreneur. So one thing that I could tell them is literally many businesses would be going straight to the, you know, London business schools and the, the better schools purely only because they turn things around. They really hone into the practicality of giving students that exposure to businesses. Yeah, that that's a really great point, you know, because at the end of the day, doing all these or taking all the initiatives is just beneficial for them. Because mm-hmm. in today's in today's market, now there are prospective students who are doing a lot of research and they want to stay relevant to what's expected from them when they do qualify, you know, after a degree. And if the other universities are so much ahead in terms of delivering value besides the, the traditional grading, and if these universities are just not keeping up, then the number of mm. applicants or the quality of applicants is going to drop. So it is just in their benefit to move fast as well. It mm. makes a lot of economic sense as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, if I had to tell them anything as form of feedback, it would be, cool. yeah, get, get up to speed. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent, great. Um, great, I mean, that's that's everything I really wanted to cover on the MBA aspect. Uh, in terms of the interim market, you know, what's what's your vision? What's next for you? What, what's getting you really excited? <laughs> I think just really starting to help businesses understand that there is a more sustainable way to continue growing in the gig economy, because the numbers of contractors now compared to ten years ago has almost grown four hundred percent. Right. So, and we know that that trend is about to continue to grow for a few years at least. So just I think what excites me and what keeps me motivated is knowing that actually we've got a sustainable, commercially sustainable solution that's going to help that growth of the gig economy whilst, you know, helping businesses stop focusing on traditional ways and and breaking their backs, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And the gig economy is doing doing really well. The whole concept of digital nomads is is gaining a lot of, uh, you know, velocity in the market. I, I myself mm-hmm. listen to so many podcasts that are coming up that are focused on digital nomads. Uh, mm-hmm. And in today's world, having a side hustle as well has become really, um, you know, interesting and almost required from so many people that they're slowly starting to transition into becoming more and more self-independent. Uh, as well yeah absolutely and I think that's because I mean when I speak about you know flexible work or future of work one of the things is that millennials and Y gen people yes there are many of us who want you know who want to keep permanent jobs Mm. but then there are many of us who want that flexibility who want to take control of their career especially because gone are the days when someone's going to stick out at a job for 20 30 years that's just not the way to progress yourselves or the business exactly so yeah so i think um, as businesses become more flexible as well in not wanting to have permanent headcount uh, it's literally it's a natural way in which the world is moving so businesses can turn around and say oh no we're not going to grow more flexible work well okay you said the same five years ago but look at where you are today it's just the way it's you know it's the wind of change and 
businesses that don't keep up with the change will just get forced into the change eventually. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Are you are you considering or planning to move some part of the operation or grow your business um, uh, in the US or on Silicon Valley or the Bay Area? I'm asking only because I, I feel now being in the UK for so many years, I feel that, you know, this kind of concept is will gain a lot more prominence in the US as compared to the UK, who's I think is slow in catching up to such concepts. What, what do you think? Absolutely. You have hit it, you know, <laughs> perfectly there. And I was in the US for about four and a half months last year as part of some of my accelerator programs, uh, my startups. Um, so, it was fascinating how mm. quickly US market was adopting the concept and actually excited about the product before even it was launched. And hence why I'm going there in mid-April, you know, nice. because there are some of those conversations that I would like to revive. And we we most certainly want to be moving into US, whether it'll be the Bay Area or New York, is is pending conversations and where early customers come from. Nice, nice. No, that that's that's really good to hear because because that's the kind of feeling I've gotten out of talking to so many people. And you know, even on this show, I've had uh, some people who are based out of there, so we can take it offline. But if you ever need um, any any contacts, I'm more than happy to put you in touch in case you ever find it helpful. <laughs> that would be brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect, superb. So. You know, I'm I'm pretty much done with most of the questions that I had in mind. Uh, one thing I really ask every guest is, what is the one thing you wish I had asked you? Um, one thing I had wished. Hmm. I would say my age. Thank God for not asking that. But I think <laughs> with most people, the way that I've already said when I graduated an MBA, etc., and I've main- mentioned a few numbers, people have calculated that or can calculate that. But no, yeah, I've not I'm done it. I'm not going to do it either. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you've covered everything. And I really like the, um, you know, the, the grounding on which you've started this, because I think that more and more people are considering further education. So I think your, um, you know, your podcasts are going to be very useful to many people. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share uh, whatever little wisdom I have. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you know, that that's, that's the idea as well. I'm really hoping that um, at least it might help to, uh, you know, reinforce uh, maybe some thought process on the MBA or maybe even break some myths around, you know, what an MBA, what MBAs are. That's why I'm trying to get in a diverse um, audience, not audience, diverse guest base as well. You know, mm. because there's, there's a lot of traditional knowledge around MBAs and, you know, it's, it's really important to try and get deeper into the conversation than just be focused on the numbers or the rankings. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Awesome. So any, any final tips and advice you have for someone who is considering doing an MBA or, or maybe even doing an MBA and they're maybe looking for career options? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, as, a, as a career counsellor who is licensed and qualified to speak, I would say that people need to focus, especially in their 20s, very much need to focus on doing the kind of jobs that excite them, that teach them a lot. And don't be afraid of challenging and don't be afraid of losing a job because you challenged and your boss didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I have been fired off a job as well um, to a point where they escorted me to the reception because they were scared. I would 
probably say something <laughs> on my way out. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is like, you know, not to be afraid of raising your opinions in the most humble and polite way. Of course, we're not screaming and shouting and fighting and being rebel rebels. But what I'm saying is that in 20s, people must explore career opportunities and options that really excite them, where they see the next 30 years of their lives being invested into that career. Right. So that would be my advice. I mean, I never did a job or a contract for money. Mm -hmm. I always did it for the kind of project, for what I would get to learn on the job. And mostly I did the kind of projects that I hadn't done half of the job I hadn't done before. So for me, the driver was the growth and change and how, how quickly can I learn? So I would advise the same that in 20s, people need to experiment, take different kinds of gigs, you know, learn as much as they can. So then from their 30s, they can focus for at least 30 years of their life investing into one career. Nice, nice. Awesome. That, that, that's excellent. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Pumika, um, this has been amazing. Thanks a lot for your time. I uh, really wish all the best to Interim Market and, and its growth. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The MBA Jam. Now it's time for you to take action. Head over to TheMBAJam.com to listen to more episodes and discover great resources.